Hello again, and welcome to the Council's Table podcast. I'm your host, Spencer O'Neill, and this week we speak with Shannon Clark and returning guest, Rob Clark. This episode is centered on three cases and two consequential Supreme Court decisions that were released on June 30th, 2023. The first two cases are centered around student loan forgiveness and President Biden's plan to absolve borrowers of $10,000 or $20,000 of student loan debt. The third case discusses a website designer who sued the state of Colorado because she felt the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act violated her right to freedom of religion. Alleging that the act could result in her having to design websites for a gay wedding that she does not believe should occur. If you have any history following the Supreme Court, you may find these decisions mark the continuation of the sharp contrast of the liberal-leaning Supreme Court this country has enjoyed for almost a century and the conservative Supreme Court this country has currently. And now, I present Council's Table Podcast, Episode 4. Hello, and welcome to Council's Table. I am your host, Spencer O'Neill, and today I have with me back again Mr. Clark, how you doing, Rob? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. And I have also with me today, Shannon. How you doing, Shannon? I'm good. Now, Shannon, um, tell the people a little bit about yourself. They've met Rob, but, you know, who are you? So, I am Rob's wife. We met in law school, where actually all three of us went to Syracuse Law, and previously practiced in New York before moving back to Florida, where I practice here. Now, what are you currently doing here? I work um, in the guardian ad litem office in Florida. Okay. And how did you end up sort of working in guardian ad litem? I had, back in law school, did an internship with a judge who did dependency, and it was something I was interested in. And when I was in New York, I did more attorney for the child work, and we moved back here, and and opening came up in the office. Okay. So, as opposed to me, who kind of focuses on uh, criminal defense, you actually practice in a totally different area. You've got um, you're doing dependency and, and more of what I would call like family laws. All right. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, before you came here. Uh, you worked in a private firm in Syracuse, is that right? I worked in both private and a legal aid up there. Okay. Uh, when you were in the private firm, uh, what kind of cases would you handle? I did family, everything ranging from paternity to, uh, they, they're called Article 10, but they're dependency cases up there, Okay. as well as misdemeanor criminal cases and attorney for the child work. Why are they called Article 10? It's just the section of the family court uh, law in New York, so it's under Article 10. Okay. Um, now, when you were at that firm, was everyone privately hired? Were they privately paid, or was there money coming in from like government contracts as well? So there were private clients, and then what the county of Onondaga does is they have assigned work so if you get training with the county you can then be assigned uh, by a judge and you submit your timesheet essentially your billable hours at the end and the county pays you okay so that's sort of similar to like uh 
to what I'd often call like the wheel, right? The wheel is um, in Onondaga County and, and in New York, they a lot of places they didn't have a public defender's office, so the private attorneys in town would take cases in literally like a wheel form, and whoever was on contract with that county would take cases in levels depending on what types of cases they would accept and certain uh, level cases get paid differently and they had that here in Florida too uh, but they had that for like conflict cases um, obviously the public defender gets all of the clients first and then if there's a conflict it goes to what we have the off something called the office of regional conflict council and then if there's conflicts within that office then they go to once again what I would call the wheel and um, a private attorney in town who has a contract uh, with the with the JAC, um, you know, with the Judicial Administration Commission or whatever that actually stands for, um, would get a case in, in, in a wheel type format. So like whoever is up next would get it. Um, so it sounds as though for Article Ten cases in New York, they have sort of a similar format. They do, and they actually have that for most of family court. Uh, unlike the state of Florida, uh, New York believes in you have the right to an attorney for family court matters. So it kind of levels the playing field, especially with custody matters, which unfortunately the state of Florida doesn't agree with. So there's a there's a fundamental right to an attorney in a family case there in is. New York? There is. That is fun. That is absolutely different than what we deal with here. And I, I think, I, honestly, I, I agree with that because I don't think someone should basically be fighting for their child and dependent on whether or not they can get an attorney based upon their paycheck. Now, what about for, like, uh, other family matters? Do, or is there a fundamental right to an attorney for, like, say, a divorce? You know... I am not sure. I do know that uh, the legal aid I worked at, they did represent people. So if you were under a certain income, they would absolutely take your case up there. Okay. Now, as far as doing the guardian ad litem work uh, here in Florida, when you're doing that, are you actually acting as an attorney at that time? I am. Okay. And you would be representing the interest of the child is that right so or the children if there's multiple so if there's a child or children um it's a best interest standard right and so it's so say for example when i was which may be different in some states so in new york there is an attorney for the child afcs and they do the wishes of the child so unless it's counter basically goes against the child's best interest then the attorney may say to the judge your honor this is what my client would like but unfortunately i don't think it's in the child's best interest because of x y and z but okay. the state of florida with the guardian and litem office it's a best interest standard which is also why there's also attorney ad litems in florida which is different what's an attorney ad litem so an attorney ad litem is usually assigned to the child, and they may do the child's wishes standard. Okay. So if there's a circumstance where the child's wishes aren't what you would believe would be in their best interest, then you would ask the court to appoint an attorney ad litem? 
So many cases where there is an attorney ad litem appointed, um, it may involve medical procedures that need to be done. Um, a child who has a disability, um, if there is mental health medication being assigned and the child does not want it or the child is of a young age, the judge may assign an, an attorney ad litem. Okay. <clears throat> so I was informed earlier that you also handle drug court or you, you deal with drug court in, in some fashion? So the there is usually a dependency drug court and then there's an adult drug court. So they're usually, you know, if you have an ongoing dependency case, you could be put into or transferred to the drug court if you would like to get treatment. Okay. Now is that <clears throat> is that different than the the drug court that I'm used to dealing with as far as like within the criminal justice system or is it kind of is it treatment from all the same people or how does that work? I, I know at least as how we handle it here, it's usually the same providers, the same judge. Um, so they try to remain consistent. Okay. Now, um, we're here today to discuss uh, a couple of cases that have come out of the Supreme Court recently. So there have been a whole litany of cases that have dropped within the last week, which you would generally expect within the midsummer. It's kind of the end of the, the season, and there tends to be an opinion dump sort of in this time of the year, so we're not surprised to see it. Uh, but the, the two cases that have really sort of, you know, that I wanted to talk about, uh, well, technically it's three, but it's sort of two types of cases. Uh, the first case can, deals with the student loan forgiveness, um, or the first two cases deal with student loan forgiveness. <clears throat> as, as many of you know, and as I'm sure you both know because you have the same loans that I do, uh, <clears throat> is it 2021 we were, the, the promise was made or was it early 2022? I don't remember specifically when it was made. It was a campaign promise, so probably earlier than that, but then it actually came into fruition at some point in 2020. I thought sometime in 2020 because of the pandemic. It was last year, right? Wasn't it last summer? No, I thought it was earlier than that, but it could be. I'm not sure. Either way. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, no, 2020, we still had Donald Trump. He was elected, and uh, Joe Biden was elected 2020. I mean, we didn't get Biden until 21. Yeah, that makes more sense, doesn't it? I could have sworn it was last summer. Either way. So, <clears throat> pretty much immediately upon, you know, uh, President Biden promising, essentially, that if you have student loans that were federally held, not private student loans, but federally held uh, student loans, that if you met certain qualifications, you would get $10,000 forgiven from your amount that you owe. And then at any point in time you had received a Pell Grant, you would actually receive $20,000 off of what you owe and, and what they would call forgiveness, I guess. I don't know if that was the actual term that they used, but that's what you know, colloquially we've been calling it. <clears throat> and pretty much, you know, immediately upon that happening we had a litany of lawsuits come out and there were two that made it to the Supreme Court this year that were decided upon uh, the first one that we can start with is one called the Department of Education versus Brown 
Now, in Department of Education versus Brown, uh, this suit was brought by a number of people, but you know, the two named persons, the last name of one is Brown and the last name of one is Taylor. And these two people were not loan providers, but actual borrowers. And you know, they, they made a suit claiming that you know, the, the forgiveness was some sort of overreach. Um, and when the, the Supreme Court heard it, um, they actually found that these two people didn't have standing in order to make a claim. So the reason they found that there was no standing uh, is because there was no harm. And in order to have a suit of some kind, you have to show some sort of material harm. And the court essentially said that if you, know, if you owe money and they're going to take away the money that you owe, I mean, that's a benefit. So what's the harm there? And they found they didn't have standing for the suit. Um, Rob, what was your thought on that finding? Uh, I think the initial part that we're looking at here, though, is that like it, it, held, it holds outright they don't have standing, and then it goes ahead with a 19-page, 19-page opinion, basically, you know, dissecting. I think that. So I think that's the actual value for the law students mm-hmm. is uh, is what can be derived from the the scalpel work around how that don't, the, how they don't have standing but it, it doesn't really go anywhere they probably were just using it to you know in my infinite wisdom I would say they're probably using it to provide additional information to compare Biden v. Nebraska now we'll get to Biden v. Nebraska in just a moment um, you know Shannon when I saw this lawsuit I thought that these people were essentially professional plaintiffs And we have another one of those we'll talk about here in a minute, but it seemed to me like, you know, complaining about nothing. It it certainly seemed a reach to me. You know, they were trying to find someone who was willing to basically, I think, put their name on the lawsuit at this point. But, you know, they were right. It is completely lack of standing. You're comparing apples to oranges. You're comparing federal loans to private loans. Well, I didn't think that it was federal or private. I thought that it was they were federally held loans that they had that were going to be forgiven. But they were saying that essentially as the borrower, the person that owes the money, that if that money is you know, reduced or forgiven, that that's a benefit and not a harm, right? So in order to bring a suit, I mean, you kind of have to have some sort of harm. Or else there's there's just no reason for the suit, and therefore you lack the standing. Like, what's the material harm there? And I agree with you in, in thinking that, you know, these were people that were just willing to put their name onto a lawsuit as well. Um, one of the plaintiffs actually had commercially held loans. So the court held that, I believe it was, um, let's see, Myra Brown's loans are commercially held meaning her creditor is an entity other than the federal government. Interesting. So, once again, them finding a professional plaintiff for someone to put their name on the lawsuit who didn't have standing at that point. Right. I mean, if she's got privately held loans, they weren't going to be forgiven to begin with. Correct, and and, and the opinion says Brown is not entitled to any loan forgiveness under the plan. It doesn't even apply to her. Correct. Hey, it's your host, Spencer O'Neill here. Just want to take this opportunity to ask you guys that if you're watching on YouTube to please like, 
and subscribe to the channel. It helps a lot growing the channel. And you'll get to know when new podcasts are dropped. I'm trying to drop them uh, weekly or bi-weekly. I've decided I'm going to start dropping them on Fridays at 5 o'clock. So that's when you can look for them. Uh, try to put them out before the weekend so you have a weekend to enjoy the content. Uh, and if you're not looking on YouTube, uh, you know, I'm on Spotify as well as well as some other venues. So wherever you get your podcasts, please, you know, follow the channel and get notifications when new podcasts are dropped as well. Thank you. Like and subscribe. All right. So let's get to the more consequential case. Uh, we've got is Biden versus Nebraska, right? And Biden being the president, Joe Biden, our most famed alum. And um, the thing that I thought was interesting about this case, at least as far as the title, is uh, Nebraska really wasn't a determining factor. Um, my understanding is the case was decided on a loan provider, her name is Mohella, who is out of Missouri. Now, Mohella uh, didn't want to bring the suit and you know, I've heard on other venues that essentially, you know, there are elite emails where they stated that they didn't believe there was standing to begin with, and that you know the case needed to be dismissed. But it was brought by the attorney general of the state of Missouri, under the theory that even though this was a private entity, they were so commingled uh, with with government action, and that they got a lot of funding to start the um, start the company through federal funding they were I think the term they use is an instrumentality yeah they're an instrumentality the of the government and they hold you also have to talk about the types of loans that Mohella holds Mohella holds is the 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 major provider for loans which are under the public service loan forgiveness policy uh, a policy which you know I'm personally pursuing where if you work in a qualified field you know government work of some kind non an NGO anything that qualifies as you know, government type work that if you do not 10 years but if you make 125 120 qualifying payments that your loans will be forgiven at the end of those 120 qualifying payments. And then the other major part to that is that the amount that's forgiven is not income. So there's no tax bomb that comes with it at the end. So Mohella, uh, they own and they are the loan provider, the current loan provider for people that are kind of pursuing that and have signed up for it and maybe made qualifying payments and the, and the government is aware of them. Are they like a like a holdings company that just holds accounts receivable? Yeah, because I don't think they actually distributed any of the money. No. They're, they're, they're essentially they a, my account. Right. I was told that's my new account holder. Exactly. I mean, they're, I think they're my third provider. There was Great Lakes at one point in time, which my understanding was out of Illinois and had a, a great connection to the Obama administration and I don't know if they even exist anymore. Um, there was somebody in between Mohella and Great Lakes, Naviant maybe, possibly, Naviant. I, I had another one that was, I think, out of Pennsylvania. Um, mine's Mohella now. I just, what I find funny is that 
you know, they're saying that the harm would be Mohella an estimated cost of fees, which first of all, we're talking about a nonprofit corporation here and we're complaining about them missing out on fees, which we're not even, I don't even want to go there right now, but they're saying an estimated cost, mm -hmm. not what has occurred, which last time I checked, the court, at least I've been told every time I practice law, that the court doesn't speculate on possible harm. They only deal in what has harm that has actually occurred. Right. So we're looking at this opinion of potential harm that hasn't actually happened. How is that right? Seems to be the same reasoning under 303 Creative. Explain. 303 Creative, she doesn't actually produce the... the oh, oh, the other case we're going to talk about, the, the, gonna, the wedding yeah, website I, designer? Did I tie it in too quickly? Sorry about that. That's okay. There seems to be a there seems to be a gap there that they both relied on for speculative harm for someone who's not doing what they're claimed to be doing. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute, but that's essentially an advisory opinion, which I didn't think that they were able to do. But either way, yeah, so... Yeah, so the harm to Mohella is fees, expected fees, right? One, the, the major word there is expected, meaning not, not happened yet. Um, I don't really understand how receiving monies, because it's not like the government wasn't going to make payments towards that money. Like that money was going to go out. It wasn't just going to disappear. Like money doesn't disappear like that. Accounts receivable at Mohella isn't just going to say, okay, well, they forgave 10000 so their 10000 goes. They're going to want that money coming in. So if that's not the harm, then the only thing they can come up with is, well, we're expecting these interest to come out of that. So, like, we add that up, and this is what we think it is. Maybe they're billing a third party for the work that they're doing with relation to our accounts. No, no, I think the fees were specifically, like, interest-type related or, or you know fees for payment that they come in and they were supposed to be fees that were coming from the the borrowers that so were paying into who misses a payment or is a late fee and Mohella is entitled to that to that income to be fair I don't think they were uh, expecting late fees I, I realize that I was using it as an example about how a fee could get there but I'm not I'm not certain how they have a fee so devil's advocate here estimated fees Congress mm -hmm. sets interest rates what happens if Congress decided they were going to set it down to 1% and wipe out their fees? That happened, but the other way around. When we were younger, when we first went to college, uh, our loans were 3.75% interest, some shit like that. And then Obama came into office, and Obama actually screwed us all. He put us up to like 6.5%. And then once you got your loans consolidated, anything that you had that it was lower went up to that higher rate. So essentially, you know, every semester or every year I got a loan, right? And those first three or four years, they were all at 3.75%. Well, the moment I decided that I didn't want to make loan payments for, you know, seven loans from seven years of school and I wanted to consolidate them, those years that I had that were at lower interest rates then went up to the higher interest rate. And, like, I didn't get to split that number or you know, uh, take into account how much I owed after the first four years in terms of, say, I owed 40, and then now I owe 160, so I should pay an aggregate of 3.75% on the first 40, and then 
six and a half percent on the last 120 and then put that together and figure out what that number is that wasn't what it was once you consolidate now you're back up to six five so you know we kind of lost the benefit as well and then we're talking about a period of time where I mean you saw tuition rates go up just in the years that we were in school an astronomical amount I know I did I mean, what did you all see I, it definitely went up when we were there. I know it's gone up since we've been there. I mean, for example, one of the schools I was touring before I decided on SU was my dad's, which was Vermont Law School. And it was, I think, $7,000 a year when he graduated in 1986. And it was in the <laughs> mid-40s a year when I went. Right. And so it, my dad almost fell out of his chair when we met with, you know admissions and they gave us essentially what would have been the breakdown of the bill and I and we went to lunch afterwards and he's like no I think it was seven altogether and he's like you're you're I, that's why he has no loans right <laughs> my grandmother was able to pay it back then um, so it's just I know and just in that time that's how much it's increased and it's increased since we've even graduated and it increased while we were in school right I think that's the nature of the beast with guaranteed loans though you speak up a little bit. I think that's the nature of the beast with the guaranteed loans. You know, the government's going to guarantee them. They're going to drive that price up because there's no limitation on... Well, they've started to put limitations on it because of the outrage recently, haven't they? What was that? Was that the case when we were going to school? Well, I mean, it... it no, 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 no. It wasn't at all. But, I mean, like, uh, for instance, we're in Florida. We have homesteading, right? So your, your property taxes can only go up an incremental amount each year. There's protections on that. So if you buy a house and then 10 years later, the price of your house goes up $300,000, you're still paying um, pretty close to what the original cost of your house was 10 years later, right? Like your property taxes aren't going to explode because of some sort of property boom in the area. And then in this circumstance, essentially, you know, they're, they're putting limits on the amount tuition can go up each year at a public institution. It's improving just that public institutions? I don't think that they can control private institutions. They're a private entity. I guess that's a solution. That's at least half a solution, right? Right. But when anything grows higher than what general inflation does, I mean, 7,000 to 41,000 from what year did you graduate? Um, I believe it was 1986. And when I toured the school, it was... 2013. Sorry, doing some crude math here. So 27 years. So over those 27 years, did $7,000. If you had $7,000 in equal value from 1986 and put it in 2013, would you have been coming up with $41,000? I don't think so. That math doesn't math if you kind of chart it against other inflations. <laughs> I mean, I know we've had a lot of inflation in this country over the last 30 years, but was it 500, 600%? I don't believe so. I know wages didn't grow that much. And in Vermont Law School's defense, it was, you know, every out-of-state private law school I was looking at was relatively all the same price. It oh, wasn't yeah. just them. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Syracuse was. I went and looked at De DePaul at one point. Like, they were all the same. And even the in-state schools in Florida were in the mid-20s, if not higher. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. You go to a, a an in-state school, in-state tuition to law school, and you're looking at twenty-seven thousand dollars to go to Florida State or Florida or whatever it was in the mid two thousand teens. I mean, that's not cheap. And why your law school should be five times more expensive than your general tuition for everyone else. Explain that one to me. And I don't think what people understand is that it's not just tuition. I, you know, I wasn't able to have a part-time job until 3L a year. Right. So you're also taking out cost of living. You're taking out your rent. You're taking out groceries. You're taking out all that and, and including that on your loans. Because, you know, you have classes every single day and then you're going home and you're studying till 1, 2 o'clock in the morning and going back to class at 9 a.m. Yeah, you can't work while you're in law school. If you do, you fail. Were we supposed to be studying till 1, 2 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> we were doing other things at 1 or 2 in the morning, but <laughs> sleeping. That's, that's what oh. we were doing. We were sleeping at 1 or 2 in the morning. That's why I owe less loans than you. I didn't understand the assignment. <laughs> <laughs> but the joke's on me because I married you. <laughs> yeah. What's mine is yours. Yeah. Hey, Spencer O'Neill here. And I just want to take a moment because it struck me that uh, some of you may not know what the HEROES Act is. The HEROES Act is uh, also known as the Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act. Uh, and it was passed on May 15th of 2020. And it was a stimulus package uh, that was passed during the pandemic with the intention of, you know, providing financial assistance to those that were affected by the pandemic. Uh, the reason it's important is because while President Trump was president, he used the HEROES Act to forgive some student loan debt for some borrowers. Uh, now, these borrowers are very specific, and it wasn't widely given, but it was used. Uh, later, when President Biden became president, uh, he tried to use the same act, the HEROES Act, in order to give the $10,000 or $20,000 student loan debt forgiveness. Being as to how we are going to discuss the HEROES Act quite a bit, I felt it was important that some of you all learn what the HEROES Act is. And now, back to Council's table. So the one sort of state that gets spoken on is Missouri because of Mohella. They find that they have standing, and then they go to the next part of the analysis, which is, were the actions that were taken, you know, essentially legal? You know, were the actions that were taken under the HEROES Act a legal action? And what they focused on was the, they call him the secretary. I'm not sure what he's the secretary of. Maybe the sec secretary of the Department of Education. I'm not sure. It's an agency. Yes. Um, but uh, the secretary was saying that this was a modification. Which would be in the purview of the congressional powers or powers granted to it by Congress. Right. So, the theory. so they were allowed to make modifications to, um, you know, to, to student loans, essentially. And that was inherent within their ability to do so, as long as those modifications were to serve some purpose where uh, there was somebody that was going to be affected by the pandemic, that you know it was it was unfair essentially. Uh, and what the Supreme Court found was that this was not a modification; this is just an outright new law essentially. 
um, that they went well beyond the bounds of what a modification is. And there's this whole argument about what is and is not a modification. And, you know, to his credit, the secretary of the Department of Education stuck to his guns and said it was a modification. And the Supreme Court balked at that and, and went with the other opinion, stating essentially that this was a bridge too far and that these actions went beyond what is a modification and became something else entirely, some other new law entirely, and uh, you know, struck down the, the student loan forgiveness, at least under the HEROES Act. <clears throat> now, I've heard that uh, President Biden wants to essentially give it another go, and I have my own sort of pessimistic views on why he's doing it the way that he's doing it, but... Uh, he's doing it through the, the Higher Education Act of like 1965 or something where he's allowed to create what I believe is a rule but he, in order to create the rule he has to go through the rule changing process the agency rule changing process so there's like a public comment area and it has to give 30 days to make comment and then they have to have public hearings and then at the end of it, you know, they can they can make a rule change, and administratively that is administratively. And he believes that this rule change under that act on, you know, solid more solid ground than what was done under the Heroes Act, hoping that that can be done. Now I do find it interesting that here we are in mid 2023, and we're about 15, 16 months away from an election. And we're talking about something that is supposed to take time. Fortuitous timing for yeah. political purposes. And I'm pretty sure that this is going to be dangled out there as, you know, um, an election sort of... As, as well as... It's a, election fodder is what it is. It, Vote it, for me and I'll, I'll try to carry through with this rule change and we'll see what happens with the Supreme Court. Vote for the other guy and you never know what's going to happen. Like, you're not going to get it. That's in there. That is what they do. That's how, that's how the... the uh, the tail wags yeah but in the meantime everybody that kind of depends on or has you know you were promised something you you were you were promised something by the government and they reneged on it essentially they did and now if you you know just like any other political promise is if you really want this you're going to keep me in mm -hmm. keep voting you know he, he wants those 82 million people to come back out 81 82 million I don't remember how many it was he wants them all to come More than anybody out. else has ever gotten. How about that? Yeah, that occurred. Yeah. All right. So, the... SU, uh, SU alum. Yeah. Most, most votes in history. <laughs> hey, I'll take it. The most, the most falls in history as well. He's a tumbler, isn't he? He is a tumbler. It's scary, because he's... I'm afraid for his hips, but so far he's doing well. He's a, he's a tough old man. I'm wondering at what point the campaign's going to say, all right, every chase you go, you have to jog out like they did the last campaign to show how much how much uh, energy he had. Yeah. He jogged out everywhere in the last three months <laughs> just to show. He would jog out to a stadium full of cars because everyone was still <laughs> separated for the pandemic. The final half of the episode discusses Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act and a lawsuit alleging it violates a young website designer's freedom of religion. The Supreme Court decided with the young website designer in a decision that seems in line with the current conservative direction of the Supreme Court. And now, back to counsel's table. 
All right, now finally to the um, to the last case. Now <clears throat> this is a freedom of speech case, and so the name is sorry I can't see. Let's scroll here. Uh, Three hundred three Creative LLC at all versus Alenis at all. And this was a lawsuit out of Colorado. Out of Colorado. Or I guess the Tenth Circuit's Colorado. Right. First Amendment action. So, you know, basic rundown. There's a lady that my understanding has never actually made a website for anybody that's that's come out since the opinion, but uh, well, fact allegations have come out that it was a stipulated. Well, there's stipulated facts, and we'll get to that in a minute. But essentially, <clears throat> she's gonna she's gonna create websites for for people's weddings and maybe other uh, you know other events as well, um, and I believe has a, a Christian background and states essentially that you know she'll make websites for anybody. She doesn't care what their race, creed, color, gender is. However, she does not want to be forced in the future to have to make a website for a wedding which does not fall within her understanding of what a, a you know of a marriage is, I don't, which I don't is think, between one man and one woman. I don't think understanding is a appropriate term there. I think it's I think it's just rooted rooted in belief. It's a belief. It's a belief. Arbitrary belief. No, yeah, a belief. A belief is definitely the right thing to say because the fact that it's a belief is what makes it according to the court a legitimate uh, a legitimate um, you know expression of you know her free speech and you know falls within her right to a freedom of religion as well so <clears throat> I think the probably the the thing that kind of gets overlooked is and I'm not sure why you know the Colorado did this but they came up with stipulated facts and and I'm going to read those to you and this is here on you know the first couple of pages in the syllabus from the opinion and what it says is before the district court Miss Smith and the state stipulated to a number of facts it says Miss Smith is willing to work with all people regardless of classifications such as race creed sexual orientation and gender and will gladly create custom graphics and websites for clients of any sexual orientation. She will not produce content that contradicts biblical truth, regardless of who orders it. Ms. Smith's belief that marriage is a union, belief there it is, between one man and one woman is a sincerely held conviction. Ms. Smith provides design services that are expressive and her original customized creations contribute to the overall message her business conveys through the websites it creates. The wedding website she plans to create will be expressive in nature, will be customized and tailored through her close collaboration with individual couples, and will express Ms. Smith's and 303 Creative's message celebrating and promoting her view of marriage. Viewers of Ms. Smith's website will know that the websites are her original artwork 
and there are numerous companies in the state of Colorado and across the nation that offer custom website design services. So there's a couple of things in there that you know should be parsed out. First off, I have no idea why the state of Colorado would agree to these facts. Like these these seem like litigatable facts, right? If you're actually wanting to fight this, why would you stipulate to this? Especially especially the fact that her belief of what this statutorily defined union is, mm-hmm. like it doesn't make a difference what your belief is. The, the state defines this marriage as X, Y, and Z. It doesn't make a difference what you believe about it. You can't disbelieve murder. You can't disbelieve other statutorily defined things so that's a very odd way of I disagree with you there you can't disbelieve you can disbelieve the things the government tells you or whatever just because it says it in a statute you can disbelieve it certainly now because what we're talking about is it's a fact that marriage is defined as something by that state right sure the state may define it as that but we're talking about the interaction between state and the freedom of religion this is a first amendment case and the first amendment is intended to prevent the state from encroaching upon those freedoms so this is exactly the kind of thing that if true is intended to be protected from right like this is that type of encroachment if it's true but the fact that the state of Colorado would just stipulate that you know her belief that marriage is a union between one man and one woman is sincerely held conviction like why would you stipulate to that I would want to litigate that maybe it was strategic because they were under the impression like it doesn't make a difference what you believe right well here's here's the other part to that she never actually made a website for any oh, any any, any persons <laughs> that asked her to do so that were there you know, is not one man and no woman right so doesn't that kind of go against the fact that this is a firmly like a, a sincerely held belief yeah or case in controversy, or the fact that you know there was no actual exchange or deprivation or endorsement that's being enforced here. Yeah. So then the very next line, Ms. Smith provides design services that, that are expressive, and her original customized creations contribute to the overall message her business conveys through the websites it creates. The wedding website she plans to create will be expressive in nature. And then it says, will be expressive in nature in quotations. Why does it say, will be expressive in nature in quotations? Because in the first paragraph, she's asking for clarification of her rights rather than rather than suing on an actual case in controversy that has caused her harm? Well, no, that's true, but the expressive in nature is the, the, the words that are important there. The expressive in nature is, is what's argued about, specifically, you know, like in the, in the prior case with the, the baker, right? The whole argument was, is this art? Is baking a cake art? This is the same argument. And the state of Colorado agreed with her that making a website is art. Well, what's baking a cake? Chemistry? You can call it whatever you want, but if you're fighting this and you're saying that you disagree with her, then why would you agree that, you know, her making a website is is art essentially this is a this is a facility especially because she's probably using code that's provided to her from Wix or GoDaddy or something like that just to provide the actual site they're making I mean she may have coding it she may have her own views and images but to say that it's expressive therefore it's you know it's protected speech essentially they they just stipulated to that 
it seems to me that you know the state of Colorado really didn't want to fight this at all. They were kind of in bed with her. That was the impression that I got going from the stipulated facts. If you agree with this and you're not litigating it, then you're telling me that you're not really willing to fight her at all. That would be pretty inconsistent with Colorado's previous behaviors, though. You know, Colorado has a long history of being a pretty conservative area. I wouldn't put it past them. Not for the last 20 years. Yeah, but what haven't we seen in the past that institutions of, you know, control move slowly just because they have a a history of of persons coming in from other areas that may have a liberal effect and just because they have you know first medicinal and then recreational cannabis does that mean they're now for like not conservative in nature I've been to Colorado it's a pretty conservative place when did when did um, the CADA get passed I'm CADA. sorry, I'm not sure what you're saying. CADA, C-A-D-A is what the uh, Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act is. Okay. And I don't know when it was passed. I'm imagining that it gets amended from time to time, but the cake case that you were just referring to was mm-hmm. only a few years old, and I would imagine that the passage of the C-A-D-A case now, or lo- uh, statute now, would probably not be much older than that or at least it's it's current well these anti-discriminatory acts are all none of them are new no but they are being updated constantly because they are always they are being updated constantly new applications all right and then the final thing to, to sort of note there which this also goes towards her argument Now, I don't know that the state of Colorado will be able to discredit this statement, but it says that um, there are numerous companies in the state of Colorado and across the nation that offer custom website design services. And what that's saying is essentially that this is not a unique thing, that there's other places for a person to go to if they want a website made and she was to refuse them, that there's other avenues. It's not, you know, something that's so unique that they can only get it from her. And that, oh, so that like tends to... Public accommodation, like a train. Right. And that tends to... Right. And that tends to go in her favor as far as the encroachment upon the persons that may want her to make the website would not be as great because they could go to another vendor. Ultimately getting like a narrowly tailored right. justification. Yeah. That's one way. I think that's a... Makes sense to me, that, that avenue, but... But yeah, so, I don't know, after reading that, I mean, I, I, and I can't speak for people from Colorado, I don't, I don't know who's involved in this specifically, but it seemed to me as though they were sort of in line with her. And the other reason that I would think they were in line with her is they never went through and actually did the due diligence to find out if the person that she said made the request of her was real, made the request, or if any of this was real. I mean, it came out after the opinion that the person that she had named was uh, another gentleman who was married, who was a gentleman that's married to a woman, been married for 15 years, and who also actually creates websites. Maybe he was outsourcing it? He came out and said, I don't know her, I never made a request of her, and I would have just done it myself. Why would I have asked her to do anything? 
That gets us into a whole different can of worms. Well, it just goes towards the fact that this is an advisory opinion. You know, she's well, suing the state of Colorado here. so that somebody doesn't tell her to do something that they've never told her to do yet. Which goes towards ripeness, right? Like, what are we... It goes to that first paragraph where it says to clarify her rights. Right. She's clarifying her rights. Since when has we have we been able to get our rights clarified without some sort of action actually encroaching upon those? I mean, for goodness sakes, in Loving v. Virginia, they got sentenced in a criminal case before their case was able to make it up to the Supreme Court. Right. Based upon love and who they were able to marry, which was also against illegal in Virginia interracial couples. But, you know, this person who was a website, they shouldn't even get a request for a website to be made. So I just, I don't understand, especially with this conservative court, how we even got past ripeness at this point. Like, come back when there's an actual harm. Come back when Colorado actually finds you or does something to your business because you refuse to create a website. Right. At least the guy that made, like, the, they asked him to make the cake, that was real. Those people came in. They asked them to make the cake. That conversation happened. That, 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 that happened. The people that you know sued him, there was, there was a lawsuit between him and the persons that he was said to have discriminated against. Right? Like, there's a ripeness there. There's a conflict. There's no conflict here. And then the conflict that was sort of conjured up is hypothetical. It didn't even happen. But anyways, so, you know, the, the Supreme Court essentially found that... I suppose on top of that, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. She even sued in federal district court. It wasn't... She just sought the injunction to prevent the state from forcing her to create something that she wasn't being forced to create to begin right. with. Right, right. <laughs> that something that just defies her beliefs. And it, Injunctive um, relief for I, something I, that hasn't been forced upon you yet we've been we've been at a loss or even been asked of years. Last I checked, injunctions were for imminent harm or harm that is occurring to right. be stopping not not i think it may happen maybe next week maybe three years from now that's not what an injunction does right so the potential the potential of a first amendment being infringed is now sufficient i i just think it's a can of worms they've opened you know, if you're willing to entertain this lawsuit, then is it now going to be that in every state that has an anti-discrimination act, there's going to be hypothetical lawsuits from persons that have businesses that, you know, may serve some sort of controversial event, whether it's a wedding between, you know, a man and a man or a woman or a woman, or let's say it's you know, a quinceanera for uh, a transgender female. Or a marriage between, I don't know, two different races. Or a marriage between two different races. Because Do, it, are we opening calls, that back up? It calls that, that reasoning back in. Well, I don't know what religious... I, I, I'd, be, I'd be hard-pressed to find what religious avenue you'd be able to fall back upon to quantify why you could refuse to provide services for interracial marriages or, or relationships. As long as their belief is there, according to this, then it has to be a genuine belief. 
Right, but they're 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 stipulating that there is a legitimate history of the view of marriage within this religion as between one man and one woman. Right, it, like there might be an ancient and archaic construct to it. I don't know how ancient and archaic it is. I know a lot of people that would say 7, that. 7,000 years old. Because of, you know, Judeo-Christian religion. Right, but Judeo-Christian values are the bedrock of what this country was sort of built off of. They're the underlying bedrock of what this country was built off of. They're inherent within our society at this point. By that logic. There's several other things that we disregard as well, though. So why would why would a religion be the thing that is the staple there then? I'm just saying that I'm not I'm not familiar with any religious, you know, affiliations or, or religious practices over where you could make a legitimate argument that you would be able to not make a cake. For a wedding between a, a black guy and a white woman. Who knows? I mean, we we say it now because we we don't have because I don't have the answer. We don't have the. I'm answer. not familiar with one. I'm not familiar with, with it either. But is it is that a commonly held belief? There's a there are huge organizations who love even protesting in Florida <laughs> about interrace. You know, the whole separatist movement is exactly about that. You know, so right, but. But what I will say is this, is in the form of marriage, marriage predates the American government. Mar marriage is a, an institution that became a governmental contract over time. It's transformed into something else, but marriage is a religious institution first. That's where that comes from. You're married under, like, you're married under, like, to God. That's, that's your, you bring forth your witnesses and you proclaim your love traditionally to God and to each other in front of God until death do you part and why till death do you part because you know you're not you're not bound to each other in the afterlife marriage is a is a traditionally religious institution well that's just because there wasn't a government there the religious was the was the religion was the government as it was created In certain, in certain places, in Rome, yeah. <laughs> in Rome, in uh, Israel, in, you know, the places where these religions were developed, religion was the core of its... It was a theocracy, in that sense. I mean, it gets there at some point, right? Like, you have the Church of England, which was... The Holy Roman Empire. Right. You know, those, cru those darn crusades, they seemed important to them. They weren't necessarily doing it yeah, but Christ, you know. Christ, Christ predates the king. Right, but what's the what's the term or the queen? What, what's the what's the term for like when the, the king is anointed? They're, they're chosen by God to be that individual. They're you know they're relying on God to create the marriage institution. And they're relying on God to create their entire government, and they tricked everybody into it. So it's just odd that we would even in this day and age, continue to maintain that marriage is a religious institution only. I'm not saying it's a religious institution only. What I'm saying is that marriage is ripe for conflict in these First Amendment cases. Fair enough. Because of the fact that there is a tradition of marriage. And it's a defined tradition. 
where the idea of marriage within specifically Judeo-Christianity is between one man and one woman. There's a history of that, and it's it's traceable, and it's, verif like it's verifiable. So you have a legitimate argument that you can make that, you know, participating in some sort of wedding that's not between one man and one woman, which is why I say it's different than, like, between the races. All right, so, Shannon, any last thoughts? Really, I just don't know how we got past standing on a lot of these cases. Um, and that's really all I have to say about that. I'm kind of surprised for this court that's really conservative, i.e. they're very much textualists and by the book, um, instead of interpretation, that standing and ripeness is a very huge thing for them and they seem to have overlooked it in two of these cases. Right. You know, that was the that was the supposed to be the selling point for Gorsuch and Amy Car uh, Comey Barrett, right? That they were originalists, that they were going to speak to the to the words of the law and not overinterpret. And then here you are willing to hold up. They were in the majority, right? Let's make sure of that before I start saying something. Well, I know Creative LLC uh, that opinion was actually written by Gorsuch. Okay. So you've got these two people that were sold to Congress before their, you know, appointment, or after their appointment and before their confirmation, as being people of of the uh, of the law of the the word of the law of non overinterpretation, and then in some of these cases to. You know, to look past what should be basic ripeness and/or basic standing, I would agree with you. I think it's it's troubling. It's new doctrine, if, if that's what they're inherent or mistakenly created. There's a way of circumventing those tenets of of how to get in front of the Supreme Court by just doing that, right? Well, I mean, and then the other thing is, like, um, is there essentially a blue book now that's been created for how to not provide services to, you know, gay couples for a wedding? A, a it seems book. like it. A blue book? As in a citation manual? No, no, don't be a lawyer. Not a citation manual. <laughs> <laughs> like, how about just a manual, all right? Is there been a manual essentially created for... A business owner that holds certain views that doesn't want to provide these services on how not to do so you essentially just need to argue that your business is creative that you would be using some form of expression in your services towards that wedding and that there's other people that can provide these services and that the persons that you are denying services too have not been harmed because they can just go somewhere else. If you can hit those four points, you can tell gay people no to any service you want in a wedding. Lance. Be it the florist, the cake, the, the website designer, the venue, the lighting, the DJ, anybody. I think you're even looking at it a little bit narrowly there. 
landscaper doesn't agree with that family that lives in that house, you can discriminate against that on that on that basis. Because landscaping can be creative. Yeah, but what's the yeah, but what's the religious input there? He's religious. So? And they're living in what he would consider sin. So he can't trim their lawn? I don't think that would go anywhere. No, there are other landscapers, they can do it too. No, I think that I think the difference there is that like I told you, the history of marriage. The verifiable history of marriage is what gives that argument legs. It's 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 why it's different. You know, there and and you know maybe a baptism could fall under similar circumstances. If you have a gay couple that adopted a kid and they want to baptize their child, you know, perhaps you could use these same set of circumstances to refuse to provide services for that baptism. But outside of some sort of traditionally religious avenue, I'm not sure how this argument would sell. What about polyamory then? Because marriage is defined here as a union between one man and one woman, so could someone discriminate against someone who is permitted polyamory in Utah? If that's well, I'm not even sure it's still that's still legal, but, but I well, think yeah, polygamy is illegal, even in Utah. It's illegal. Yes. <laughs> Aren't there television shows about this? Yeah, I think you just can't marry each other. You can be as polygamous as you want. You oh, just can't actually. Shows, get I thought married. they were. I thought they were actually married. Those shows recognize it's illegal, which is why the first one's an actual marriage, and the rest I don't think they're, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're marriage. They're marriage to God in front of God and sister wives, and yeah, you can be as polygamous as you want. As you can be as polygamous as anybody will allow you to be, including all of your wives. Now, can I just say this as far as polygamy? I have a wife. I have no idea why anyone would want to. <laughs> Your wife is also my best friend, so we're going to go with that. Okay, I don't care who my wife is. I do. That's not the point. I don't care who anybody's wife is. I don't know why you would want two. Or three, for that matter. You know? It takes everything I have just to, you know, <laughs> to get through the one marriage. So, I, And most people, a lot of people can't make it through one. So I'm not sure how they're going to handle three wives. Here's the other thing about the polygamy, guys. For anybody that thinks it's a good idea, uh, your wives have to be on board with each other. It's not like you can just go out there. It's not like cheating where you know there's secrets. No, no, no. All that shit's open. So yeah, I don't know. Polygamy doesn't make any sense to me. If if if, if it's for you, more power to you. I don't know how you have the energy or the bank account, but good luck. The the point is, it's subjective. Polygamy subjective? No, marriage. <laughs> marriage and, and what the, the Supreme Court has, has, as you described, one of those four elements is, is a subjective thing that can't really be measured by a court. Right. It can only be compared to what multiple people have multiple understandings of what marriage is from what their paradigm places them at. Well, and that's supposed to be where we are now, right? Is, you know, the government is no longer supposed to be able to find marriages between one man and one woman because they're not allowed to impute that religious, that traditionally religious view right, that's the onto persons that aren't participating in that religion just because they feel like it. It's the endorsement clause. Right, it's the endorsement. So, all right, um, I think...
Shannon, thank you. It's been fun. It's been great. Thanks for having me. We'll do this again without Rob. Sounds good. All right. Uh, this is Council's Table. That last part was hurtful. <laughs> Sorry for Rob for the last part being hurtful. However, for those interested, I do intend to have future conversations with Shannon and discuss the area of her expertise, dependency, and family court. So if you're interested and you enjoyed this episode, watch out for Shannon in the future. I believe that what we have learned from these decisions is that you cannot trust this Supreme Court to hold true to the originalist views espoused so elegantly by some of the more recent justices appointed to the court. Basic ideas such as ripeness of a lawsuit and if a litigant has standing may not be dependably followed. When it comes to Supreme Court, our country has entered a period of change and uncertainty. The only thing we can depend on in the future is change. For many in this country, this may not be a change they would like to see. As a public defender, this new direction of the court causes me great consternation. However, I will try to be optimistic in the future. Once again, thank you for listening. And this was the Council's Table Podcast.